In 2004, Ralph Keyes published a book entitled The Post-Truth Era, Dishonesty and Deception in Contemporary Life. Near the beginning of his book, Keyes offers a discouraging assessment. He writes, quote, I think it's fair to say that honesty is on the ropes. Deception has become commonplace at all levels of contemporary life. What do you think? Do, do you think that this is true? It, it, it feels like it from time to time, doesn't it? That truth is on the ropes. Whether or not we live in a, a post-truth era, I think is debatable. But what is not debatable is the fact that truth is, and perhaps always has been, under duress. How important is truth? Isn't it crucial for the sustenance and good order of society? Isn't it crucial to our own lives? Think about what happens to our relationships with one another when truth and honesty are absent. How important then is truth with respect to your relationship with God? Before us this morning is the book of 2 John. And in this book, we are at one level presented with a question. How important is the truth about Jesus? How important is the truth about Jesus? And the answer that this book gives is this. If you do not have the truth about Jesus, you do not have God. That's what 2 John says. If you do not have the truth about Jesus, you do not have God. So... As we begin our study of God's Word this morning, it's my prayer that we would clearly grasp the truth about Jesus. And if you haven't done so, let me invite you and encourage you to turn in your Bibles uh, to the book of 2 John. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find them uh, in the pews in front of you or on, uh, to the side of you. Uh, it's found on the page uh, 1025. Uh, the little letter of 2 John is on page 1025. Now, as we saw last week, we began our study in this book. So we saw last week, John appears to have written this little letter to a local congregation. Uh, he was particularly concerned about the truth and loving the truth and loving those who love the truth. Uh, having considered John's greeting to those whom he loves and John's request for them to walk in love, that's what the first six verses of this letter are about, we now turn to the heart of John's letter. In verses 7 through 13, we find the central exhortation of this letter. The central exhortation of the letter and the practical instruction that follows from it, that flows from it. And John's closing salutation. Uh, we're going to study 2 John, chapter 7, uh, sorry, 2 John, verses 7 through 13, uh, under three headings John's exhortation, John's instruction, and John's salutation. John's exhortation, John's instruction, and John's salutation. In your bulletins, I think there's an, an outline there provided the sermon. I hope that will be a help to you. You'll notice there's a, a section on the side there labeled Doctrinal Helps and Books on Christology. Uh, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, the doctrine of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, and one of those books on that list is out there in the book nook. There are free copies, this little book for you to take away. It's, as William mentioned this morning, 77 pages. You can read it in an afternoon at the beach. 
you know, August is coming up. Many people are going on vacation. You need good reading at the beach. This really small little book on this important subject uh, will help you. So feel free uh, to grab a copy there in the book nook out in the lobby. Let's begin this morning uh, by looking at John's first point, his exhortation. We're looking at John's exhortation. And just so you know, this first point is going to be the longest point of the sermon. Uh, so let's take a look at verses 7 through 9. 2 John verses 7 through 9. John writes this. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So do you hear John's exhortation in these verses, in verses 7 to 9? The exhortation is actually nestled there in verse 8, right in the middle, when John says, watch yourselves. That's John's exhortation. And John tells his readers to watch themselves. He tells them to do this because many deceivers have gone out into the world. But here's where we need to back up just a little bit more and consider John's train of thought. The, uh, the opening word of verse 7, 4, signals to us that this exhortation falls in the broader context of this letter. In verses 4 through 6, John expressed his joy that members of the church were walking in the truth, and he asked his readers to love one another by walking according to God's commandments. And that is when John pivots. John pivots in the letter saying in verse 7, 4. It can be translated because... So do you see John's flow of thought? John is saying that he is glad that they're walking in the truth and he asks them to love one another because many deceivers have gone out into the world. So what does walking in the truth and loving one another have to do with deceivers going out into the world? Walking in the truth and love is actually a guard against deception. Walking in the truth and love is a guard against deception. As we give ourselves to knowing the truth and loving the church through obedience to God's commandments, we are guarding ourselves from deception. But how? The more we practice the truth, the more we know the truth, not just intellectually, but experientially as well, and the more we experience love and practice love, the more we are able to identify counterfeits. For the sake of your own soul, you need to walk in the truth, to know the truth. For the sake of your own soul, you need to be genuinely loved and to genuinely love others. If you don't, you're not going to know what to watch out for. If you don't, you're not going to know the difference between the truth and a counterfeit. And brothers and sisters, this is the nature of counterfeits. They pass themselves off as plausible substitutes for the real thing. We are taken in both because we are deceived, they have deceived us, and because we have not fortified our faith with truth, love, and obedience. And look at the price that's paid there in verse 8. John tells us to watch out. Why? He says, so that, that's a purpose clause, so that we may not lose what we have worked for. What is John saying? John is saying to this church that he loves, 
I've worked hard to tell you the truth about Jesus so that you might inherit eternal life. Walk in truth, live in love by keeping God's commands so that you may reach the goal of eternal life. John is not suggesting that you can lose your salvation. Again, John clearly dismisses that in his first letter in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, where John clarifies that all who walk out of the church, that means they abandon the faith, all who walk out of the church reveal that they were not true believers to begin with. Why does John give this warning or threat in verse 8? Because that is one of the means that God is pleased to use to encourage believers to persevere in the faith. Believers who hear this warning will respond to this warning by saying, Yes, Lord, help me to walk in the truth and live in love by obeying your commands so that I may press on to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Christians hear this warning from John and they heed it. The deception that John seems to be concerned about here in 2 John is the same deception that John seems to have been concerned about with 1 John in his first letter. In verse 7, John points out that many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now let's take that in. John just shoved a whole lot of stuff right in our face in those short phrases. First note that John says there are many deceivers. Did you see that? This is, this is still the first century that John's writing in. This is really closely connected to the time in which Jesus lived. And there are already many deceivers. Brothers and sisters, we, we need to be aware of this. Jesus said that this would be so. And he was right. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 10 and 11, Jesus said, And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Now, did you just hear what Jesus said? about hatred and false teaching? They go hand in hand. Is it any wonder that John is talking about here, he's talking about truth and love. Jesus talked about hatred and false teaching, how they go hand in hand. And what's John doing? He's saying we need to live in the opposite way. We need to love the truth and walk in love. Jesus said that many false prophets would arise in Matthew chapter 24, verse 10. And then he repeated it. A few verses later, in verse 24 of that same chapter, in fact, Jesus mentioned the appearance of false teachers three times in that chapter. That makes me think that he wanted to say something to us about them. And there would be many of them. And John says there are. Notice also in verse 7 that John says they have gone out into the world. Which raises the question, doesn't it? Where were they to begin with? Where did they go out of? Could they have gone out of the church? I think they may have done just that. And this, this continues to happen today. There are false teachers in the church who go out of the church and into the world. Uh, Rob Bell, he was a popular pastor in the early 2000s. Uh, he, he began a slow but steady drift away from Christian orthodoxy. I think that his departure from Christian orthodoxy may have actually began when he began to question the full deity of Jesus Christ which is what John is concerned about here in 2 John. Rob Bell eventually went on to deny the biblical doctrine of hell, and from there he left the church and went to live at the beach, where he no longer follows Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. He started in the church, and he went out into the world. Brothers and sisters, part of your ministry to me as a pastor and teacher is making sure that I start in the church, that I stand on the Bible, 
that I stick with Jesus as my Savior, who is fully God and fully man, and so stay in His church. So for the sake of my soul, for the sake of your soul, walk in truth and live in love through obedience to God's commands. This is a guard against deception. Now John, he is concerned about a particular kind of deception that's occurring, a particular doctrine here. And I want us to make sure that we understand this truth. If it's John's concern, it should be ours too. John is concerned about those who deny the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This could either be a denial of Jesus' full divinity, that he was fully God, or it could be a denial of Jesus' full humanity, that Jesus was fully man. This truth concerning the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh is so crucial to our faith and salvation that we're going to unpack this statement. We're going to take some time and unpack this statement from John. And let me just stress to you how important this is. This is not a non-issue. This is... Uh, This very day we are faced with Christological heresies, heresies about Jesus. Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Mormonism are all Christological heresies. They all say false things about Jesus. They all deny the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Many of us have had Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons turn up at our doors, and they endeavor to deceive us by telling us that we believe the same thing, but we don't. We do not believe the same thing. What is more, many of us do not take the possibility of deception seriously enough. Did you know that in the 1980s, an estimated 40% of Mormon converts were from Baptist churches? Now, I don't have any statistics on Jehovah's Witnesses, but we have had them come to the door of our home. And, and one time, some women turned up to our home, sat down and talked with my wife. And in, in that conversation... Uh, They asked my wife what what church she went to. My wife told me, you know, I go to a Baptist church. Uh, When she told them that, one of the women said to her, oh, I used to be a Baptist too. And do you know what that tells me as a pastor of a Baptist church? It tells me that we as believers and as Baptists need to know what the Bible says about Jesus. And in particular, what it means that Jesus has come in the flesh. So let's unpack this phrase, the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. I'm going to kind of try and do it phrase by phrase. So we're looking at the coming of. This is the the pre-existence of the eternal Son of God. First, John tells us that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, which means he was existing as a person previous to his incarnation. And the Bible, uh, the teaching of the Bible is plain. The eternal Son of God has has existed eternally. And in time, he took on flesh at the appointment of God the Father. So this is what the Apostle John says in, uh, in his gospel. In John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. So just in, in case we're uncertain about who this Word was in the beginning, John tells us in verse 14 of that same chapter, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Apostle Paul confirms this teaching that the eternal Son of God, the second person of the triune Godhead, came to earth when he writes in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. The writer to the Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, Verse 14 says that Jesus partook of flesh and blood. 
And a little later in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, he says that he was made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, when we say that Jesus was like us in every respect, we can say that he has feelings like every human being has feelings. After all, when he was facing the cross and his impending death, he said in Matthew chapter 26, verse 38, my soul is very sorrowful even to the point of death. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in the flesh. He was fully man. And it ought to be a great comfort to us as believers that he is able to sympathize with us. He has experienced what we experience. He was born like you and I were born. He was born of the Virgin Mary. You learn that in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. He grew like you and I and our children are growing. We learn that in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. He grew in wisdom and stature. And like many of you right now, Jesus was hungry from time to time. Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. And he ate. Luke chapter 22, verse 20. And Luke chapter 24, verse 43. And like some of you right now, Jesus slept. Matthew chapter 8, verse 24. And of course, Jesus wept. John chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus was fully man. The eternal Son of God did not merely appear in the flesh. He became flesh. He took flesh to his person. There was the union of his human nature with his divine nature in the one person of Jesus Christ. This is what theologians call the, the hypostatic union. The union of these two natures in one person. Which is to simply say in the words of the Baptist Catechism right there on your sheet. Uh, that the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who being the eternal son of God became man. And so was and continueth to be God and man. In two distinct natures. One person forever. Jesus is forever fully God and fully man. Jesus is like us. He is fully man. And still he is not like us, for he is fully God. His divinity in the scriptures is revealed in so many places and in so many ways. The, uh, the, the scriptures reveal that he has power over demons, disease, disease, uh, I said disease, destructive waves, and even death. The scriptures reveal that he has power over these things. They reveal his creative power, his divine power. In Mark's gospel alone, we learn in chapter 1, verse 26, that he, he can command demons to come out of the people they are torturing. In chapter 1, verse 42, we see Jesus healing a man of, of leprous disease, not to mention healing a paralytic. In chapter 2, verse 12, Jesus reveals his power as the creator when he, he calms the destructive waves. In chapter 4, verse 39 of Mark's gospel. And he reveals his power to reverse the curse of death when he raises a 12-year-old girl from the dead. In Mark chapter 5, verse 42. Friends, that's just in the first five chapters of Mark's gospel. And if you're not persuaded that those great works of Jesus reveal his divinity, then you need to go back to Mark chapter 2. The reason that Jesus healed the paralytic in Mark chapter 2 was to prove that he could forgive sins. He told the paralyzed man that his sins were forgiven. And then the religious teachers who were there, they started questioning him in their hearts. They thought to themselves, who can forgive sins but God and God alone? And they were right. The religious teachers were right 
Only God can forgive sins. And that's when Jesus told them in Mark chapter 2, verse 10, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And He rose and immediately picked up His bed and went out before them all. You see, the physical healing of the paralytic was proof that the spiritual healing of the paralytic took place. The forgiveness of sins. Since God and God alone can forgive sins, Jesus proved in a single swoop that He was fully God and fully authorized to forgive sins. Jesus also told us Himself that He was the great I Am. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And do you know what happened next? His Jewish hearers picked up stones to stone him. Why? Why would they want to kill him? Because they grasped the enormity of Jesus' claim. Jesus was claiming to be the truly glorious God of Abraham. In uttering those words, I am, Jesus was claiming that he was the God of the Old Testament. That name, I am, uh, was the name that God gave himself in the Old Testament. Specifically in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus is Yahweh. He is not merely saying that he existed before Abraham did, though that is true. No, he was saying that he is God. Do not be deceived by anyone who says that Jesus never claimed to be God. He did. That's exactly what he did in John chapter 8, verse 58. It's exactly what he did in Mark chapter 2 when he healed the paralytic and forgave him of his sins. That's why the Jewish religious leaders, they picked up stones to stone him. He in their minds had committed blasphemy, claiming to be God. And under the Old Testament law, they were well within their bounds of pursuing capital punishment. Unless, of course, Jesus was who he claimed to be, which was God. Jesus proved his deity, his divinity in his works. He proclaimed his divinity in his words. And after his resurrection, his disciples professed his divinity. So in John chapter 20, we read of Jesus' encounter with Thomas after the resurrection. Thomas has reasonably been called Doubting Thomas, but perhaps a more accurate description of Thomas would be Unbelieving Thomas. He had emphatically told his fellow disciples that unless he sees Jesus and touches him with his own hands, he said that he would never believe. And then Jesus turned up and he said to Thomas, Touch me and see if I'm really alive. Jesus asked him to touch his flesh, flesh, and Thomas takes the flesh and blood appearance. He takes the human appearance of Jesus, not only as proof of his humanity, but also as proof of his divinity when he says, my Lord and my God. All of this truth about Jesus is hugely important, is it not? Look at how John describes those who do not confess this truth at the end of verse 7. John calls those who do not confess this truth deceivers and antichrists. And let's recognize this about those who turn up to our doorsteps and do not confess 
the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. They are trying to deceive us. They may not think of themselves that way. They may not think that that is what they are trying to do. But that is precisely what they are trying to do. Now, John mentioned the subject of antichrists in his first letter. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. If you just flip back a page or two in your Bibles, you'll see there. Chapter 2, verse 18, uh, John says this. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. John says to his dear children, It is the last hour. This expression is a way to describe the, the redemptive historical context of John's readers, and frankly, our context too. If John and his readers were in the last hour, then we're at an even later point in the last hour than John and his readers were. John says that Antichrist, singular, is coming, and that Antichrist's plural we're turning up in John's day. So, so turning back to, to 2 John, verses 7 to 9 again. What are we to make of John's use of the singular here in 2 John? I think we should simply understand that these many deceivers are part of the work of the final and climatic, climactic antichrist at the end of the age. Uh, the figure that Paul mentions in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 may be that final climactic antichrist figure. Paul says that that figure has not yet been revealed, which means that he's hidden, so we should not spend our time trying to figure out who he is. Besides, notice that John doesn't mention the Antichrist so that we can focus in on him. He mentions the Antichrist so that, verse 8, we can watch our own souls. Don't get caught watching for him. Don't get caught looking for him. Do what John says. Watch yourself. It is important that we watch our own souls and guard against deception because the price of failing to watch our own souls is eternally high. We do not want to lose a reward. John had worked hard to instruct this congregation the truth and to give them the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ and he did not want to see them be taken captive by deceivers and so proved that they never possessed the truth to begin with. John wanted them to receive the reward of eternal life by continuing to abide in the truth of Jesus. Which is why he circles back to another warning. John warns them in verse 9 not to go on ahead of the apostolic teaching about Jesus. You know, so often heretical theology is cast in terms of progress. It's cast in terms of a new theological development. Clearly, the danger here in 2 John is that some teachers were saying, you know, we, we've grown in our, our doctrine and our understanding of who Jesus is. We've come to learn that Jesus wasn't really a man. He didn't really have flesh. He, you know, he really only appeared to be a man. He really only appeared to have flesh. That's what John's readers were facing. In theology, novelty is bad. In theology, novelty is bad. Coming up with new ideas about God is bad. God has given us all the ideas that we need to have about Him in His Word. In the realm of theology, you don't ever want someone to say to you, you know, in the history of the church, 
No one has ever thought about God like that. That would be a bad thing for someone to say. Everyone who goes on ahead of this teaching about Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, he does not have God. One, one pastor, commentator, and scholar suggested here that John's actually mocking heretics in verse 9. Uh, this pastor went on to communicate that John was saying that uh, they had indeed, these heretics, they had indeed run ahead. They had advanced so far ahead that they had even left God behind. That's what we need to watch out for. We need to watch out for running ahead of what God's Word has said. Instead of running, we need to focus on abiding. On settling ourselves down into this truth about Jesus. Remaining in this truth. So that we may have the Father and the Son. Do you see why it is important to have this truth about son, the Son? To, to believe and confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. If you do not have the true Christ, you do not have the Father or the Son. You must have the true Son in order to have both the Father and the Son. Jesus told us this Himself. What did He say in John chapter 14, verse 6? Didn't He say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. You cannot have the true God unless you have the true Son. And when we have the true Son, we truly have the Father and the Son. That's John's logic. So let me just give it to you again. You cannot have the true God unless you have the true Son. And when you have the true Son, you truly have the Father and the Son. What more could we want? What more do we need? Do you believe and confess that the eternal Son of God has come in the flesh? Do you believe that Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God? That He came from heaven for us and for our salvation? And, and do you see that it could be no other way? The problem that the Bible presents to mankind is that we have sinned against the Holy God. The problem that the Bible presents to us is that we have offended God. That we have sinned against our Creator. And that though He made us in love and for love, that we have not loved Him. But we have loved ourselves. We have rebelled against Him and rejected His good authority over us. And in doing so, we have come under His wrath and curse. And all mankind will face His eternal wrath forever in hell if we are not rescued from Him and reconciled to Him. Over and over again, the Bible shows us the failure of mankind. In the words of Augustine, man is not able not to sin. Even with the gift of the law and a close relationship with God, we see the people of Israel still sinned. And the words of the Apostle Paul, life under the law only increased sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. So what is the resolution to the problem that the Bible presents for humanity? What's the only possible resolution? What is the only resolution that makes reconciliation with God and a rescue from God's wrath possible? You know, to me, this is why Islam and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism and, and really every other religion out there uh, is so obviously false. Because the problem that the Bible presents, the problem that we see with our own eyes each and every day in this world and experience 
in our hearts can only be resolved by the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. I, I hope that you see that so clearly. The problem can only be resolved by the God-man. Who else could reconcile God to man and man to God? If Jesus is only fully uh, God, uh, if He was only fully man and not also fully God, He could not resist sin and therefore He could not be our Savior. And if Jesus was only fully God, if He was not also truly and fully man, then He could not be a representative substitute for mankind. In order for mankind to be redeemed from sin, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, had to come in the flesh. In Jesus Christ, the, full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. So friend, if you are here this morning, and you are not a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, then I urge you to turn from your sin and to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe that He lived the sinless life that you and I have not lived, but that God's law requires. Believe that He lived for us, that He lived for you as the God-man. Believe that He gave up His life on the cross for you, dying as a substitute and taking the wrath of God that your sins deserve. And believe that He was raised from the grave on the third day, never to die again, so that you might be reconciled to God and rescued from God's wrath and promised eternal rest in heaven. Friend, believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And if you want to know more about what it means that Jesus lived for you and died for you and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins, then please do find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about this good news. Talk with a, a Christian that maybe you turned up to church here with this morning. There's nothing more important that you can think about and know and understand this truth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Well, friends, having considered John's exhortation, we now turn more briefly to consider John's instruction. And, and really, we spent so much time on John's exhortation because it's central to our faith. If we do not truly confess the Son, we do not have God. John's instruction then flows from this exhortation. John's instruction here is merely an application of loving and abiding in the truth, of heeding his exhortation. So, so let's look at John's exhortation in verses 10 and 11. John writes in verse 10, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. You see, false teachers and deceivers had gone out into the world, but they needed a place to bring their teaching. In order for disease to survive, it needs a host to feed on. And John tells his readers, do not be that host. From John's instruction here, it seems as though John is giving the church a doctrinal test for whether or not they should receive a teacher into their midst. When John says that if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, what he's saying is that if anyone comes to you and does not bring the teaching of the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, then do not receive him into your house. You know, in those days, most churches met in houses. Houses back then were, were not like houses are today, or at least in our present context. Um... As part of the home, there would often be a large area for a company to gather in. 
So in, in Acts chapter 1, we, we probably see something like this taking place. It seems like there's 120 people who, who may have been gathering in one room in a house. And just a fun fact for you, uh, Arlington Baptist Church held its first meetings in a vacant home uh, owned by Colonel Byers at 3507 South 8th Street with 30 people in attendance. So it's just down this way and down the block that way. Um, because I think John is writing to a local church, and, and we work toward that position in last week's sermon explaining that this elect lady that John's referring to, this dear lady, is a, is a local church. The churches in the New Testament are often referred to in feminine terms. Uh, so in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about the church as being the bride of Christ. Uh, so this church that John is writing to, this is the most immediate instruction for John. And his, his first readers, he's giving them, he's saying, don't receive false teachers into your church. Do not give them a platform for their teaching, for their false teaching. Here's how one scholar, Robert Yarborough, put it. He wrote, while there's no call to be uncivil to them, to receive them in the sense of endorsing their teaching, giving them financial support and offering them personal encouragement makes no sense when their teaching clearly rejects historic Christianity. We as a church are going to be careful about who we allow to step into this pulpit. Uh, that means that the elders have to think carefully about who we allow to step into this pulpit. And it also means that if an individual steps into this pulpit and you as a body hear teaching that does not seem quite right to you, you need to humbly raise questions about it. Paul yelled at the churches in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 1, because they had let false teachers into their pulpits. He didn't yell at the elders. He yelled at the local congregations. Not to repeat myself from last week's sermon, but to repeat myself from last week's sermon, this is why uh, we make sure each incoming member of this congregation can explain the truth about Jesus in a membership interview and why it's crucially important to the life and well-being and health of this church on a long-term, ongoing basis. Um, we, we need to make sure that we understand and clearly grasp who Jesus is. While we're also thinking more personally uh, about applying these verses, brothers and sisters, let me urge you not to invite false teachers into your homes and cars through the internet and television and radio. Be careful with respect to what you watch and listen to. That's not to, that's not to say that every preacher on the internet or on the radio or on TV is a, a false teacher. But what I'm saying is you need to be careful about who you're listening to and watching from those uh, arenas. You know, if you have a question about a particular preacher that you're fond of and you want to know if they're faithful or unfaithful, please come and talk to the elders about that. Uh, let us help shepherd you to good teaching. I, I can tell you one thing. It's my hope uh, that you will always find faithful teaching here at this church. So let the teaching of this church be your main intake of biblical teaching. And let those other forms of teaching be supplements to your faith in Christ. John, you may have noticed, also gives the instruction not to give a false teacher any greeting. Uh, here John is saying, do not greet him in any way that leads him to conclude that you too believe the same things about Jesus. Better yet, John is saying, don't greet him like he's a Christian. Christians in those days uh, greeted one another with explicitly Christian greetings. The Apostle Paul may have mentioned one of those forms of greetings in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 26, when he instructed the congregation in Thessalonica to greet each other with a holy kiss. 
He wanted them to, to greet each other as family. Uh, this would have been a common greeting, and greeting each other in that way is actually an expression of peace. There's, there's union and peace between the two people who are greeting one another. Think about what it would communicate to a false teacher if he was not greeted with a common Christian greeting or the greeting of peace. Perhaps John is telling his readers, don't give these false readers the kind of greeting that I gave you at the beginning of this letter. Don't say grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. If a believer did not give uh, a false teacher that greeting, then that false teacher would likely have been put on notice that they didn't believe the same thing. Why does John not want believers to give this greeting or receive false teachers into their church or their homes? Because he does not want them to take part in their wicked works. That's what he says there, isn't it? Their wicked works amounts to nothing less than trampling underfoot the Son of God. We need to call false teaching about Jesus what it is. It is wicked. If we should call Satan's twisting of God's word in the garden wicked, then shouldn't we call twisted teaching on the word made flesh wicked too? We should. Still, there are questions, more questions of application from this text for us. Does it mean that if we love the truth, uh, we won't have those who proclaim Christological heresies into our homes. In, in other words, uh, does it mean that we cannot have our Muslim neighbor into our home over for dinner? Does it mean that we cannot have our Mormon friends over for dessert? Or our Jehovah's Witness co-workers uh, into our homes for, for coffee or tea? We can and should, I think. The idea here is not to help those who hold to those false teachings. We should not give them a, a base of operation from which to spread their false teaching. I think that's the idea here that John has. Having said that, let me remind us that all the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons who show up our door, once again, they are trying to deceive and convert you. Do not be naive about what they are trying to accomplish. Be careful not to greet them as a brother or sister in the Lord. In fact, you're drawing sharp and bright lines between Christianity and their false religion may actually lead to their conversion. When I was a 10-year-old boy growing up in California, we lived next door to a lovely Mormon family. Uh, one day, my sister and I went off to an amusement park with this Mormon family. And, uh, and walking into the amusement park, we started to talk about religion. And the, the mother of this, this Mormon family uh, said that they were Christians. She told me that they were Christians. And that's when I shot back, no, you're not. Uh, Mormons aren't Christians. You know, generally speaking, 10-year-old kids talking back to adults is not polite. Um, but it stuck with her. And, and when we returned home later in the day, she reported the conversation to my mother uh, and, and said, you know, your son, he said the cutest thing today. Uh, I told him that, he, he, that uh, we were Christians. And he said, no, you're not. Isn't that, isn't that funny? That's a real conversation that happened. And do and you know what my mom said? She said, it's true. You're not Christians. And you know what? That led to a series of long conversations between my parents and this Mormon couple. And, and eventually the Lord used my parents to lead them 
to faith in Jesus Christ, to believe that He has come in the flesh and that He's their Lord and Savior. They, they left Mormonism and began to follow Jesus and are following Him to this day. Brothers and sisters, for, for the glory of Jesus Christ and the salvation of sinners, we need to draw distinctions between the faith once for all delivered to the saints and faith made up by men. And parents, we need to teach our children about the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And for it to be so clear in their minds that they can lovingly say, no you don't. We don't believe the same thing. We don't believe the same thing about Jesus. Let me tell you what the Bible says about Him. He's the most wonderful person I have ever met. Those who turn up to our door have conversion to falsehood as their goal. And for the glory of God, let us have nothing less than conversion to the truth as our goal. And we speak kindly to them and lovingly to them. Well, having considered John's instruction, let's even more briefly now consider John's salutation. Uh, read 2 John verses 12 through 13. John concludes this letter. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Now the very last uh, verse of this letter reminds us that John is writing from one church to another. He is Sending not only his greetings or salutations, another word of saying greetings, uh, but the greetings of another body of children of God. It's appropriate and important for churches to have a mutually loving relationship with one another. It's part of the reason uh, that I pray for other local churches in, in the pastoral prayer. And it's also why other local churches pray for us on Sunday mornings. It's, it's often why guest preachers will say to us, I bring you greetings from the local church that I'm coming from. And it's why I say a similar, uh, give a similar expression, well, I'm guest preaching at another local church. After having told the church not to greet false teachers, John tells the congregation in verse 12 there, you'll notice uh, that he wishes to greet them. And he wishes to do so face to face. He wishes to speak to them in an intimate manner. The Greeks, literally, they're mouth to mouth. I wish to speak to you, mouth to mouth. John has said some things, obviously, in this letter, but he wishes to say more. Interesting, isn't it? John shows restraint. We can learn from him, can't we? It is better not to put some things down by pen, or text, or email, or Twitter, or Facebook, or whatever the cool kids are using these days. Uh, some things need to be said face to face. Before you hit send or pop something in the mail, ask yourself, does this need to be said face to face? That's a good test. And, and we should show the kind of restraint that John shows. Some things need to be said face to face so that the meaning is not misunderstood. Some things need to be said face to face so that the, the right tone of love and affection are communicated. That seems to be part of what John wants. He wants this congregation to know that, that he loves them and rejoices in them. He's rejoiced to find some of them walking in the truth. Verse 4, and now he tells them that he hopes to come to them so that their joy may be complete. 
John wants to move from great joy to complete joy. Something is lacking if John and the congregation do not come together and speak face to face. Isn't that always the way it is for real, meaningful, and significant relationships? Do they not require speaking and meeting face to face? They do. And the beloved apostle no doubt wishes to personally remind this congregation of the truth and express his love. Well, we should conclude. This little letter is full of wise and practical counsel. It's full of truth and love. From, from the opening greeting to the closing salutation, John expresses truth and love. Let us pray that God would give us the grace to live out the truth and love of this letter. In particular, let us pray that we would know and love in truth. Let us pray that we would walk in the truth by loving one another through keeping God's commandments. Let us pray that that God would help us to watch ourselves and to watch our confession so that we would always abide in the teaching that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh for us and for our salvation. Let's pray together.